Welcome to the MWC Church Podcast. This is Stephen Luna, the lead pastor. I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening, and I hope you find that this inspires you in your relationship with Christ. Now here's this week's sermon. Isaiah 54, we've been in this text for uh, eight weeks. This is our eighth week into it, and we've only gone through five verses. And it's because every, like we at MWC, we believe in biblical preaching. We don't believe that we should just fly through Scripture. We believe in the authority of Scripture, that it is edifying for, for the individual, that is, it is a double-edged sword able to cut through anything, right? Like it's truth, it's wisdom. So we, we look at God's Word um, not as our uh, suggestion book, but we look at it as our survival guide. So we've been spending time getting familiar with Isaiah 54. And just to give you some context, the Babylonians, which is a a kingdom that was rising up to power in the ancient Near East, they uh, began invading other countries. And God normally, through Israel's history, whenever the people, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, whenever they were focused on God and worshiping him, they would always experience victory. They, they, they were able to push back the Assyrians for some time. They were even able to completely thwart the army of Egypt and, and the Edomites and the, all the mites that you see in the Bible. They were, they were so victorious when they were focused on God. But the moment they would fixate their eyes on something else, usually a false idol, God would tell them after repeated warnings, turn away from that, turn away from that. After a while, God would say, because your heart, and he would warn them and tell them, if you continue walking through this, I'm going to have to remove my hand of protection and give you up to what your heart desires. So he did that to the nation of Judah. He said, listen, if you guys no longer want to serve me, if you no longer want me to be your God, I will lift my hand of protection and offer you up to what you desire. God said, for 70 years, And this is how just our God is. If you don't want nothing to do with me, that's all right. But he's also a gracious God and a merciful God. He gave them up, but he said, it's only going to be for 70 years because you are my beloved and I love you. And even when you turn from me, I will always pursue you. That's who our God is. That's a glimpse of grace right there. He he gives them up and he said, for 70 years, you will live under the the confines of of another kingdom. You will walk under the the idolatry and the paganism of of this kingdom, of, of the kingdom of Babylon. But after 70 years, come back. I will bring you back to myself and I will be your God and you will be my children. And he uses this symbolism in Isaiah of a husband and a wife. God is the husband and and the nation of Israel is the wife. We know that when we look at scripture and we see them talk about the church, it's Jesus is the, the groom and we are the bride. So we see these parallels, New Testament, Old Testament. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And now God is telling us in Isaiah 54, we're going to read this passage in a second, what is going to happen as a result, Judah, what will happen to Judah as a result to coming back to the Lord. And I believe that in our context, in our day and age, at MWC Church, the Lord is proclaiming the same blessings and promises over you and this church. Amen? As we get to this, let me ask you this question. What would it take for you to completely leave everything, the comfort of everything you understand, the house that you live in, the car that you drive, the the job that you currently have, uh, the, the, the safety of knowing Costco is just around the corner, what would it take for you to leave all of that and move to the desert? 
You see, this was a question that many in the eastern U.S. were asking themselves in the 1840s. They were asking themselves, um, what, what would it take for us to leave the, the comfort of what we know? You've got to remember, in the 1840s, they only knew the east and some parts of the west, but the majority of it was dominated by Mexico and parts of France, and, and there were some frontiermen. Uh, these were like the... the the hillbillies who were living out there, they were like the trappers and the fur traders, and they, they were the crazy guys, the Daniel Boons that lived out there. And, but for the, for the most part, the safety was found in the eastern U.S. There was the Native Americans there and uh, Indians, and, and, they, and they, did not, they did not ever cross that land. But something happened in the 1840s. There was news of gold found in the hills of San Francisco. Yes, and little John, okay, was there, okay. <laughs> oh, man, uh, what happened to little John? Let's just take a moment of silence for little John, just kidding. Uh, but they found gold, they found gold. Uh, that's what it was actually like. That right there is worth $25,000, that size there. And if you can see, there's a dollar bill right next to it. It is, it is probably uh, the same size and diameter of, of a quarter. And yet that is worth $25,000. But they were told that there was gold in the hills of the region around San Francisco. Something, gold, or the promises that come with gold, caused 300,000 people to leave the eastern U.S. and make the 3,000-mile journey to San Francisco. And this was before I-84. There was nothing there. They had to blaze their own trails. They were either on foot or being pushed by an ox or a mule. I I think they said less than 1% of the individuals who traveled from the eastern U.S. to the Gold Rush site in in San Francisco area, uh, less than 1% of them had horseback. So these ideas of of horse-drawn care, like uh, that wasn't the norm. In fact, people were so audacious at the the hope of, of gold that some even went around the U.S. They traveled south along Florida, went through the Panama Canal, and went up through the coastline of Mexico to get to California. I mean, that just tells you how difficult of a journey. They put themselves and their families at risk of disease. You ever play Oregon Trail? Everybody dies of dysentery. That ain't a lie, right? Like, like uh, Cholera, cholera, right? Uh, we, I mean, just some crazy, crazy sicknesses. They traveled up mountains and, and through deserts, all for the hope of gold. And not just gold, but what is brought with the promise of gold, that you can provide for your family, that you will make a new life, that you will strike it rich, that, that somehow you'll be able to set up generations of families or, 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 or from ancestors of yours, set them up. And, and you know this, they found over 350,000 or 750,000 pounds of gold during the gold rush. From, 19, or from 1848 to 1855, they found over 750,000 pounds worth of gold. Uh, that would have been calculated at that time to about 10 to 20 billion dollars. Isn't that ridiculous? Did you know this, though? The people that left, only a small fraction of them actually struck it rich. You know who made the most money? The merchants. The ones who went down ahead and, and began to sell uh, things to those that were coming. Uh, this is where we get Levi Strauss, Levi Jeans. Uh, that's where he struck it big. And, we, and uh, there is one guy, his name is Sam Brannon. Uh, he was living in San Francisco before, listen to this, before the gold rush. It was a city of 1,000 people. By the time it was all said and done, uh, over 300,000 people were living in California. This is the fastest migration we've ever seen in the entire U.S. since that point from, from, from one part of the U.S. to one specific 
specific location. Never seen that again. Um, but Sam Brennan, just really quick story. Sam Brennan, he said this, that, that whenever there's a gold rush, sell shovels. <laughs> like, don't, don't go looking for gold, but, but start selling shovels. There's a, 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 a marketing or a business lesson for somebody there. That's not here, but if I was doing a TED Talk, I'd probably get into that, but we're not doing a TED Talk. We're preaching the Word of God, okay? All right, so uh, getting back into this, it, it was the lure of gold that, that brought them there. It, it was the promise of hope, and, and I believe that, that as I was, I was looking into the history of this, you know, I'm a history buff, I, I truly feel that God has us on a similar journey, that God is, is calling you and our church to give up all that we know as familiar. And I'm not saying we're literally going to move our church and we're going to some desert. Uh, That's how cults are formed. We're not doing that. But I believe figuratively God is speaking to us as a church. And he's saying, I'm calling you to do things you've never done before. I'm calling you to go places and love on people that you've never loved before. I'm calling this church to, to, to trust me in a journey that it has never been on before. And I believe that, that unlike the, the, the promises of, of gold, the empty promises of gold, God is bringing a promise. And here's one thing I know about our God, that unlike gold, whenever our God speaks, we can trust him at his word. That when he says there is blessing on the other side, if we choose to walk in obedience, you better believe that blessing is on the other side. And God is in a process in Isaiah 54 communicating that blessing to the individuals who are hearing it, to our church, that if we choose to walk in obedience, then the blessing is right around the corner. Can I say that one more time? When we choose to walk in obedience, blessing is on the corner. That is what sustains the blessing of God. So let's read this passage, Isaiah 54, 1 through 3. It says this, Rejoice, childless one who did not give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the forsaken one will be more than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the sight of your tent. So God is saying there's going to be increase. There's going to be increase. You may have felt like a barren uh, nation, but I'm about to bring increase. I'm going to grow your populace. I'm going to, I'm going to do things in this church. I'm going to grow this church. You may have felt like, what, what's going on, God? What are you doing? God is saying, I'm about to bring increase. And now the Lord is saying, this is how you prepare for the increase. Enlarge the sight of your tent. The current size and parameters that you have are not big enough, so you have to think bigger. I want to bring increase. You have to get ready for it. Enlarge the side of your tent. We do that by enlarging the size of our heart. God, give me a heart for the people that you love. Lord, give me a heart for the people that are sitting next to me. Lord, may I never allow anyone walk into this church lonely and walk out the same way. Can I love them? Can I extend belonging for them towards them? God, can I, can I have eyes to see people who feel like they have no one, and can I be the answer to that prayer? That should be our Every, every single one of us, that should be our prayer as we come to church. God, who can I love? Who can I wrap my arms around? Who can I be in relationship with? So he says, enlarge the sight of your tent. Let your tent curtains be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your ropes. Drive your pegs deep. These are all commands of doing. The Lord is saying, do these things, do these things, do these things, these things. And now he goes to a command of being. Everybody say Doing. Everybody say being. So we see in this passage, we're going to look in a second, the Lord is shifting from do these things to the command of be this, a command of being. So from doing to being, starting in verse 4, the next verse, he says this, do not be afraid. Do not, what's that word there? 
be. Do not be afraid. A command of being. The Lord is not bringing a suggestion here. He's, he's not saying, hey, uh, uh, to the best of your ability, try not to be afraid. He's saying, he's giving an explicit command. Judah, MWC Church, family, do not be afraid, for you will not be put to shame. Don't be humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will no longer remember the disgrace of your widowhood. You know, when I was a a younger Christian, I, I used to believe that the commands of God were difficult. Anybody ever identify with that? Like, like you're like, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian. It's, it's almost like, like the moment I got saved, everything just became heavier. Yeah, there was the hope of Jesus, but it was just like, oh, going to church and figuring life out and, and, and giving this up and, and walking this way and not doing this. And it, it almost became like there was a, a heavier load. And that's because I, I didn't understand something. I misunderstood the purposes of the commands of God. If you believe that the commands are, of God are, are meant to, to ruin your joy or to, or to strip you of happiness, you don't understand the, the purpose for the commands of God. You see, when God gives us a command, it's not because he's trying to take away something from us. When God gives us a command, it's not for us to lose something, but it's instead an invitation to receive something greater. Every command that we see in Scripture is not because God is a killjoy. He's not a cosmic killjoy trying to ruin your life. He's trying to replace whatever that was with something even greater. When we see the command of the Lord to to not have premarital sex, the reason why he does that is not because he's trying to withhold pleasure, but he's trying to have us experience it at its purest form in the confines of marriage. You see, when God says do not drink, it's, it's not because he don't want us to get crunk and have a good time. It's because he wants us to enjoy him without having the, 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 the debilitating effects of, of what alcoholism can bring. And I'm not just talking about, you know, wine with your wife over an Italian dinner. I'm talking about, like, little John, okay, <laughs> getting crunk. But it's not because God's trying to withhold something from us. It's because he's trying to have us walk into something greater. He's trying to experience something even better. When the Lord gives us the command to turn the other cheek, it's not because he wants you to be a floor mat and get stepped all over. It's simply because he wants to teach you something. That when you turn the other cheek, you get to extend grace to another individual. The same grace that was extended to you. You get to see God fight the battles for you. So every command that we see in Scripture is intended to not take something away, but an invitation to receive something even greater. And did you know this? God's commands should not be viewed as a burden. What's a burden? It's a Greek word that we see in Scripture quite often, and if we were to illustrate burden, uh, it it would literally mean something that is slipping through the fingers, something because of the weight that is slipping through the fingers. God's commands should not be viewed as something that is so hard to carry that it's slipping through our fingers in fact, we see in Scripture, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, say this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You know whose commands were? The religious folk. This church is not a religious church. We don't put the commands of God and say, All right, now go follow them. We understand that Christ is the one who came before us that he accomplished 
every act of obedience, even obedience onto the cross, and that, that because of him, he now empowers us through his grace to live out the commands that God has for us and that they are not a burden. Uh, the, the Pharisees, however, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, this is what Jesus had to say about, about them. He said, they, the Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Whenever somebody just places a command like, hey, just, just follow this, and, and does nothing to encourage or to lead or to empower that, that is when the, the law of God becomes a burden or the commands of God becomes a burden. But here's what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, come to me, all of you who are, what? Weary and burdened. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is literally saying that as you walk towards God, come alongside me, and I will place a yoke on you. What was a yoke? It was something that was attached to two animals whenever they'd be pulling something. And God is saying, I will do the work if you put this, if you live in the parameters of my life. And some of you have been trying to live in a relationship with God, but you have just made it about rules and this rigorous form of religion. And, and Christ is trying to say, attach to me. Come alongside me. My burden is light. God is not saying that he's going to not, or not allow you to follow moral code. He's not gonna say, hey, don't worry about following in righteousness. No, he's like, no, you're gonna walk in righteousness, but I'm gonna be the one that's leading and directing. I will empower you. So his burden, his commands are not burdensome. And you know what? The enemy wants you to view God's commands as burdensome. He wants you to view them as, as, as something rigorous or optional because Satan knows that when, when you operate your life in Jesus, you will walk in the true meaning of life and have a meaningful relationship with him. When we choose to walk in obedience, God's commands, when we choose to walk in obedience to God's commands, they are like our SVPs to his blessing. Did you know this? Every single person in this room, God desires to bless but when we choose to not walk in obedience, we are saying, God, I don't want your blessing. But when we choose instead to say, God, help me, empower me, strengthen me to walk faithfully to your word, we are marking yes to the blessings of God. So all of these blessings that we see, this, this, this blessing of increase that we see in the scripture, God is saying this, you need to follow the commands. And I'm gonna empower you. They're not gonna be a burden, but, but I, will command you, or I will empower you to do so. The first command that we see in this passage in Isaiah 54 is this, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's the first, or that's the, the first command of being that we see in here. And I'm convinced, friends, that you and I need to give up the fears that we have. That there are some of us who God is calling to do great things, things that, that uh, we, we were just thinking, oh, you know what, if, if I was different or if I was that or if I was there, then, then it'd be make, it would make more sense and then I would go ahead and do this. But, but I feel that in this place, God is trying to strip away every fear that is keeping us from walking towards the promises that he has for us. Put yourself in the, in the context of, of this text. Remember that they were, for 70 years, under bondage from the nation of Babylon, the people of Judah. 
And now the Lord is telling them not to be afraid. Afraid of what? Well, these people don't, they, they've never owned anything that was theirs. Everything they had was a, 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 a loner. Um, you ever get loner clothes from, the, from like the lost and found in high school? Uh, like you spill spaghetti all over you and then you're just like, oh, I gotta go to the lost and found and put on all these different clothes. And you're just like, man, you, you, you begin to walk in a, in, in a posture of just like defeat. And now God is telling these individuals who have never had anything of their own, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. You will not be disgraced. Don't be afraid. Take that step of faith. Trust me, I have you on a journey. You may feel inadequate or insecure, but, but do not be afraid, the Lord is saying. You know, one thing that I've, ever since I had kids, I've been asking myself more and more how much of fear is learned and how much of it is genetics. Um, I'm convinced that the majority of the fears that we possess, I, I would, if I had to give a percentage, I would say over 90% of the fears that you and I possess are all learned. And I know some of it's good, right? right? Like, like not jumping off of a cliff. That's a good, that's a good thing to be afraid of. Um, but did you know this? Like, like children aren't burned with the fear of falling. It's not until they fall that they develop the fear of falling. Uh, uh, the, the, the only fear, the most primary fear that we have is a fear of a loud noise from going to quiet to loud and kids begin to cry. That is the only fear that we are born with. And we go through a process of life learning how to fear. Again, some fear is good. It protects, but I would say the majority of the fears that you and I have in this place are fears that God does not want us to have. And we are on a process of the Holy Spirit stripping away every single fear that we have and learning to trust him more. God is on this process of stripping fear from our hearts and the only way it happens is by us accepting the situations that we're walking through and and leaning into Jesus. You know, the only times that we see the disciples afraid in the New Testament are the moments they lost focus of Jesus. I mean, think about this. Remember uh, when, when, when the storm was going crazy? I, they were on a ship, they were on a boat, they were traveling from the region of Galilee, moving up north, and, and, and they were, um, uh, there was a, a huge storm that, that came, and, and they were afraid. It's because their eyes were on the storm and not on Jesus. Jesus spoke one word and calmed them, and they're like, who is this man? Another time that we see them afraid is, is specifically Peter. When Peter uh, was, 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 another time they were on a boat, he was stepping out of, out of the boat and he was, he was walking towards Christ, literally walking on water as Jesus was walking towards the boat. And it said that, that Peter began to look at the waves around him and the moment he lost sight of Christ, fear consumed him and he began to sink. Then Christ grabbed a hold of his arm. And what did he say? Why is your, you of little faith, you, why do you lack faith? The moment your eyes leave Jesus is the moment you allow fear to take root in your life. We also see this again in, in the story of, of uh, uh, Jesus' arrest. Remember when Jesus was arrested, it said in fear they fled the location. Why did they flee? Because they lost sight of Jesus. Friends, if we are ever gonna defeat fear, our eyes need to remain focused on Jesus. That's the point here. So his command is, is do not be afraid. And he's not saying, you know, you muster your own bravery and try harder and work harder. He's saying, listen, don't be afraid. Focus on me. Keep your eyes fixated on me. That is the only way we overcome fear. In fact, look what he says in Isaiah 41. He says, so do not fear, for I am with you. He's not saying do not fear, 
be stronger, be more courageous. He's saying, do not fear because I'm with you. And when I'm with you, and when I'm the one who's leading, and when I'm the one who's guiding, there is no reason to be afraid. He says, do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. So if you believe this is a message of of you got to get stronger, you have to stop being so afraid, you need to start practicing by going into your room, turning off the lights, and, and, and then turning them back on, like, like work to be more courageous. Like, like that, that is not the point of this message. The point of this message is if we are ever going to be people who don't allow fear to dictate our actions, then the only remedy we have is to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's the only way. Yeah, give God praise for that. That's true. So if we are going to receive the increase God desires to bring, the first thing we need to understand is is we can't be afraid. When God is for us, there's no reason. Who could be against us? There's no reason to be afraid. God is calling you to do things you've never done before. And it may sound scary, and you may be saying, if I was better talents, if I had better talents, or if I was younger, or if I was in this stage of life, then, then yeah, it would probably make more sense. And God is saying, no, 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 no. You are allowing fear to dictate what I'm trying to accomplish through you. So fix your eyes on me and not your requisites and, and what you walk in and, and not, not what you have and what you possess, but fix your eyes on me and you will do things you've never done before. Do not be afraid. But then the second command he gives us is this. Do not be humiliated. Everybody say humiliated. I believe this is just as crippling as fear. I believe Humiliation is this. Humiliation happens after failure. Humiliation is the result of a previous failure that causes us to walk in a spirit of shame, a feeling of intimidation, and even self-hatred. If we were honest in this place, we don't have to lift up our hands. If I asked who's afraid or or who's, who's experienced humiliation, we would all lift up our hands. We've all been there where you know, maybe, maybe you're, uh, I'll give you an example. My, my son, August, he, uh, he's super cute, but there was one time where he put on these shorts, and uh, they were one size too small, and they were super tiny on him, and, and Katie and I just laughed, like not laughed at him, but laughed at like, like the cuteness of him getting dressed and coming out because he wants to be a big boy. He put on his own clothes, and he came out, and it was like three sizes too small. And, uh, I mean, he was, like, wearing some Daisy Dukes. Like, there they was, like, some tiny little shorts. And we just started laughing. And ever since then, um, August was like, he doesn't want to wear shorts. He's three years old. And, and just from that innocent little thing, it, it led to humiliation because he thought we were laughing at him. And if we were to contextualize the story, I believe that, that many of us in this place have, have maybe tried to step out in a position of leadership. Maybe you've tried to go on that venture and you, you tried to do something and it blew up in your face. Maybe you grew up and, and you had parents that always ridiculed and always shot down your ideas and always made you feel inadequate. And I believe that you have walked and lived out of a paradigm of humiliation and you've operated under it for so long that you have done the, the erroneous thing of allowing humiliation And you've started calling it humility. But humiliation and humility are not the same. You see, humiliation is thinking of yourself less or thinking less of yourself while humility is thinking of yourself less. Does that make sense? 
Humiliation is thinking less of yourself. You're walking around, you're just like, oh, I couldn't do that, or I, 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 would, I wouldn't be good at that, or, or surely God's not calling me to this. That, that's, that's humiliation. Humility is simply thinking of yourself less. Not focusing on yourself and focusing on others, focusing on God. You see, I believe that, that we need to, the only way to, to defeat humiliation, the only way to no longer operate out of, out, of, out of a place of humiliation is to learn and understand what God's proclamations are over us. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, listen to this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, he says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Paul's currently in prison for, for being a, a preacher. And he's writing to Timothy, and he says this, Timothy, so never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. He continues on, for God saved us and called us to live a life of holiness, a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. But that first part there is key. When you got saved, when you gave your life to Jesus, and hopefully for some of you, maybe that is today, something happens. The Lord takes away that spirit of fear and timidity and replaces it with the spirit of strength a spirit of self-discipline, a spirit of power, of love and self-discipline. But what do we have to do? We have to let go of humiliation by understanding what God has given us in its stead. See, humiliation is the emotion that keeps us from action when God calls us to move. That fear of stepping out in faith, you're just like, no, I've seen this fail before. I've, I've learned from someone else's lesson. And I believe the way our church is going to be the church that God has called us to be is if you and I learn to set aside fear, set aside humiliation, and walk towards the promises of God. Look at that passage. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, for you will not be put to shame. Don't be humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth. If we were to take a survey in here and ask how many of us have things from our youth age that we're ashamed of, for you, maybe there's a picture that you've tried to hide from Facebook, but that person, that brother of yours, keeps posting that picture of you with that, with that, uh, with that perm, and you're just like, why did I ever do that? The shame of my youth, or the things that I've done the Lord is saying here that when you walk in obedience and when you step out in faith towards the blessings, the promises that I have, I'm not going to dig up the past. So why are you? Friends, God has your life on a trajectory to do incredible things for him. But we cannot allow fear and humiliation and, 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 the, and the reminders of our past to keep us from walking in obedience. We need to trust him. He says, you will not be put to shame. You will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the disgrace of your widowhood. 
See, the promise of God is that when we walk in obedience to him and follow his lead, our past failures, our disgraces, and shames will become distant memories and fuel for our future. And I love that he ends the passage with this in verse 5. He says, indeed, indeed, everybody say indeed, your husband is your maker. This is not a message of try harder. This is not a message of do better. That wasn't where the Lord ended. Notice that he ended in verse 5, and he was reminding the nation of Judah who he was. I'm not telling you, hey, you just got to stop being scared and get stronger and get tougher. I'm saying, yeah, we got to do those things, but understand that our courage is rooted in the person of Christ. It's rooted in God. This isn't a self-help message. This is a message that, that when we understand that we are rooted in Jesus, there's nothing to be afraid of. The closer an intimacy you walk with God, the more you'll be able to look at at your fears and and, and the things that, that have humiliated you in the past and say, that's not me anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ. But look at the reminder that he gives here. He says, indeed, your husband is your maker. He's saying to the people of Judah, yeah, you were once a childless, barren woman. You, you, you had nothing going for you. You were even disgraced because you decided to walk away from this. But, but I'm here to tell you that now the relationship has been restored. Your husband is your maker. God is the one who's your protector, your provider. That was the role of a husband. And in the ancient Near East, they all understood that a husband was the protector, the provider. And God is saying, I am your protector, your provider. His name is Yahweh of hosts, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. If you want to be someone who learns to not operate out of a lens, a worldview of fear and humiliation, there is something you need to do. You need to stop looking at yourself and start fixing your eyes on Jesus. That when he saves us, he sets us on sure footing that we don't have to be afraid. We no longer have to be humiliated. God is not gonna dig up the things of your past. He's not gonna open up your closet and say, hey, remember that time when he's gonna say, no, 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 let's, let's move forward and let's, let's begin to walk under a new Lens and understand that, that you are free from that. You don't longer have to live under that bondage. And friends, as we end today, I believe that some of us in this place, all of us in this place, are called to do things. And perhaps fear has kept you from taking that step of faith. Inadequacy a feeling of dread comes over you when God's like, hey, take that step. And you're just like, God, it, that's messed up. That, that, that relationship, I, I failed in that. My parents, are, or you're bringing up all these excuses and God is trying to say, fix your eyes on me. Indeed, I am your husband. I am your maker. I am your God. I am your protector. I am your provider. So if we can just have a moment in this place where we just reflect on this truth, and ask ourselves, 
with every eye closed, every head bowed, what, what areas in our life have we allowed fear to dictate our steps or humiliation to guide us? Our church is going to be walking through a season of, of foster care where we are going to do our very best to love the most vulnerable of this city. And maybe God has been speaking to you to take that class or be a part of that, that process and you've just been afraid. I believe God's desire this, eve, this morning is for you to look to him as your strength. Maybe God is calling you to go places you've never gone before. Maybe for you it was a, a call to ministry or a call to, to that job and it's failed in the past. But here's one thing I know. Romans eleven twenty five 25 is clear that the giftings and callings of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. The message translation says it clear. It says God's gift and his call are under full warranty, never canceled, never rescinded. So Father, I pray over every single person in this room. God, we know you are calling us to do great things. God, your desire is to bring increase to our lives and to this body. Father, you have commanded us to enlarge the site of our tent, to, to spread wide the curtains, to not spare any expense, to, to lengthen our ropes, to strengthen our pegs, to, to get ready to support the increase you desire to bring in this church and in our lives. And Father, we know that the blessings are coming. But we pray, Jesus, against any fear, against any humiliation. And instead, God, we pray that you would instill in us a boldness that comes from you. That you would replace humiliation with humility. That you would replace fear with the tenacity of obedience towards you. That we will allow nothing else to dictate our obedience to you. That when you say, go, we will go. When you tell us to stop, we will stop. That we won't allow the promises of finances or gold or provision or, or anything else keep us from walking in obedience. So all around this place, I just want to take a moment and, play, and pray specifically. If there is anybody in this place who would admit in faith that, you know what, Pastor, I have been walking in fear. I have been walking in humiliation. Would you just lift up your hand so I know who to pray for this week? Thank you, God. Thank you, God. 
Thank you, Jesus. Father, we pray for these hands that have been raised. We ask right now as one church, Lord, that you would replace fear with boldness, humiliation, with humility. And God, that every single individual who is operating out of that paradigm, I pray, Lord, that that our eyes would be fixated on you, that we would trust you. And maybe, maybe we are in this place and we're not operating out of fear. We are not operating out of humiliation. Maybe we've, we've dealt with that. Would you help us, God, to understand that, that if we are on the other side of fear, on the other side of humiliation, we now have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters and, and bring them alongside to the other side of your blessing. Help us, God. Empower us. May this church be the church that you've called us to be. No more fear. No more humiliation as our eyes are fixated on you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Friends, let's stand and worship the Lord. And that wraps up today's message, but we've got more on the way, so be sure to subscribe so you won't miss a future podcast. You belong here, so we encourage you to get connected. You can find us on social media or online at mwcwichita.com. That's mwcwichita.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.